morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are today. I'm Ali Amagasu, and you're listening to Cloud Unfiltered. We have been dragging our feet for a couple weeks and haven't had a guest, but we're finally back in the saddle. And uh, we're really excited about uh, the gentleman we'll be talking with today. His name is Krishnan Subramanian. He's the founder and analyst at Rishi.Research. Welcome, Krish. Thanks for having me. It's uh, looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thank you, thank you. We're always excited to talk to uh, to Pete's friends from the industry. They have lots of interesting things to say, and uh, so far I haven't had to edit any of it out. <laughs> um, before we get going into the topics that you're passionate about and that are relevant to our industry right now, uh, why don't you tell me how you got into tech? We always like to hear that. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I used to be a theoretical physicist. I was doing my PhD in theoretical physics. So as a part of, uh, since theoretical physicists do a lot of computation, I had a Linux server at my disposal for my running my uh, uh, Photon and then uh, C program programs in the past. So when I had a Linux server with root access, that is like something to, you have to explore. So I started fiddling around, uh, it's early Slackware days. So I, I was uh, trying to hack into it, like try to change everything and figure out what's happening. So I sort of like uh, started learning about the system admin tricks and all that. So when I was doing my PhD, a colleague of mine convinced me that I should do, we should do uh, a startup. So like uh, that was uh, the early dot com days. So I thought, okay, let's try it. And I jumped out of PhD. And uh, when I came out, it was January of 2001. We all knew what happened, so I didn't know what to do. Instead of going back to doing PhD, I became a system administrator, and eventually, like I started a few companies supporting open source software. And when cloud came into picture, I thought, oh, it's bad for open source. And since I had some back background on system admin, I was playing around with Amazon Web Services. Then I figured out that maybe cloud is the model for, is a very good business model for open source. You could take open source software, run, run it as a service and deliver it to people. Then started evangelizing cloud. Somewhere in between, they said, hey, be realistic. Then I moved into an analyst phase. That's how uh, I sort of came into this field. Excellent. Do you ever miss being a physicist? Yeah, I do miss being a physicist sometimes, especially when you see interesting news coming out of uh, Large Hadron Collider and other places. I do miss being a physicist, but uh, I sort of compensate for that by sort of listening to all the lectures that are out there in YouTube. And uh, I, I've been following uh, all the new research that's coming out in archive.org. Uh, yeah, so that sort of keeps me engaged at the periphery. So yeah, and so that's the compromise I could have. When you talk about the Large Hadron Collider, are you talking about CERN in Switzerland or the yeah, SLAC right. in, in Stanford? Switzerland, where they had Higgs boson uh, a few years back. So, yeah. Right. That was exciting. And there's some overlap because they run they run OpenStack, right? Yeah, they run OpenStack. They, I think they have the largest number of, uh, largest cluster of OpenStack out there, if I'm correct. Like, if, my, if I remember it correct. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I saw Tim. Oh, I don't remember his last name. But they're the lead administrator. Uh, he's spoken at a couple of OpenStack conferences. Yes. And I, I've seen his uh, talks too. Yes, that's how yeah. I think about it. Yeah, they're dazzling. That's a really cool proof. Uh, you know, use case. Yeah, they are a very good use case for OpenStack. In fact, uh, I would say they are the poster child of OpenStack uh, to some extent. Right. 
Okay, so um, we Pete texted me that I lost him. Um, <laughs> actually, I didn't lose him. Um, he lost power, which is an exciting thing. Oh, he's he's joining us back. Perfect. See, this is the kind of thing that I will edit out. This is definitely our technically challenged episode. But Pete's tether, back. Had to tether to my phone. My whole neighborhood lost power. My backup generator kicked on, but I don't have internet right now. So, woohoo! We're that dedicated here at Cloud Unfiltered that we'll. <laughs> Wow! Yeah, your your um your image is a little a little fuzzy, but we'll take what we can get at this point. Um, All right, you want me? I'll even turn off the camera. No, you don't have to turn off the camera. We like to see right. your face. Not that okay. many people actually watch it compared to listen. So okay, your audio quality is a lot more important. Okay. <laughs> uh, we just uh, got the rest of Chris's story about how he went from physicist to um, to analyst to, to analyst. analyst. Which is 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 another interesting path that I don't think we've heard yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so when we were talking before the show, Chris, you talked about some of the the things you're you're passionate about, and and cloud native computing was one of them, and serverless, and 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 let's talk a little bit about OpenShift because it sounds like you were really involved in that project uh, at least up until a couple of years ago. Um, what was your involvement there? Uh, I was director of product strategy at uh, Red Hat for OpenShift, uh, and uh, I, I sort of like when I joined OpenShift, uh, OpenShift had a different container uh, technology uh, go, going with that. So uh, after joining OpenShift, I went to OSCON uh, for uh, the open source conference in Portland. There I met Solomon and Ben Golub uh, talking about Docker, and I thought, okay, this is a great fit for OpenShift. And uh, we started talking, and that's how uh, OpenShift initially uh, embraced Docker technology, and eventually we moved to Kubernetes and uh, for orchestration. Uh, that's a great uh, OpenShift is a great product. Like uh, uh, sort of like it made it easy for uh, developers to deploy their application at the same time gave some sort of control for uh, IT operations to ensure that uh, um, in, across the entire life cycle of the application from developer laptop to uh, the production environment, you could provide the same kind, same environment. Like for example, the biggest problem that led to the whole DevOps movement is developers saying that, hey, it's working fine for me, but it fails in production and operations blaming developers, developers blaming operations. With the platform like OpenShift, what you could do is you could deploy the same environment in from developer laptop all the way to production. That sort of that uh, reduce the friction and sort of enable DevOps without even having to worry about bringing in the culture of collaboration. So that that approach uh, sort of was interesting to me. And uh, for a long time, I was a big advocate of platform as a service. If my if my my thinking was. If abstracting away the underlying complexity is the driver for cloud, then we should abstract away all the way to developer interface. We shouldn't be uh, just stopping with the infrastructure as a service. That's why I was pushing for uh, platform as a service. I ran two conferences called DeployCon uh, to advocate that. And uh, then I also ran a conference called Cloud 2020. That's when I met Pete for the first time. So. Uh, that's what drove, uh, drove me towards OpenShift, and I was there for two years. It was a good experience. Red Hat is a great company, and uh, I think we worked with Cisco uh, uh, and the OpenShift team, too. So it's a great company. Are you no longer an advocate of platform as a service? It sounds like you've moved on from that. Yeah, 
I, I, caught that too. I caught that too. It was I once was. Or yeah. I used- what 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 happened? Is is Paz is Paz done? Is it is it in the past? Are we extracted beyond that or abstracted beyond that? Uh, the, the conversation around past has changed a little bit, like uh, from being that uh, abstracted away into the platform for developers. It has sort of like uh, they started talking about uh, container, container orchestration, and all that. It's like going one level down from the idea of pass I had. Like uh, so, pass is still there. It's still relevant for most workload container platforms are the way to go. But uh, serverless uh, or functions as a service has sort of like uh, gotten my attention these days, especially as an advocate for de- develop- making it uh, seamless for developers. I thought uh, functions as a service or serverless is a good abstraction to advocate these days. And that is probably where I hand it off to Pete. But the first question I'll ask is, is, is what's most interesting to you as far as what's going on with serverless right now? I know AWS has something, right, that's available. Yes. Yeah, uh, I can't remember Lambda. the name of it right now, Pete. Lambda. Yeah. Lambda, thank you. Um, but I know that's not all that's going on. Is Lambda the most interesting thing or is it just one of the many interesting things? AWS Lambda is the one that started this uh, discussion towards serverless or uh, industry towards serverless. It is still one of the biggest uh, platform out there, like uh, used by many developers. In fact, in the last two reinvent, like if you had tried to attend uh, AWS Lambda sessions, it, it was all standing room. So developers are fascinated by AWS Lambda, but it is not the only uh, platform out there. There are uh, the, uh, there is uh, Azure function from Microsoft, Google functions from Google. Then you have tons of open source uh, platforms out there. Google recently released Knative. OpenDisk has been there for some time. IBM has been using this. Then I, uh, there is an interesting startup called Spotinst, which takes advantage of Spot instances to deliver uh, functions as a service platform. There are tons of uh, offerings out there. Uh, open source is just like containers. Open source is fast becoming the uh, sort of like a driving community for uh, serverless these days. If 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 I'm if developers are fascinated by Lambda, um, are IT leaders excited about it yet, or is there a reason that they would resist such a thing? Uh, I would say let me be a little more controversial. They have no choice. They have to support it. Like uh, they 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 don't support their developers with the tools they want. They are going to go directly to Amazon or Azure or Google and get the get the service they want. So this will lead to shadow IT. So the best thing for IT leaders to do right now is to provide that kind of abstraction for developers. Uh, so that's where open source is becoming important. Just like how Kubernetes changed the game for container platforms, I think we will soon see the emergence of a, a, some kind of a standard that will drive uh, on-premises uh, version of serverless and uh, probably a hybrid cloud uh, version of serverless, but uh, IT has to sort of like support that. So they may not be excited about it yet, but it would serve them well to get excited about it. Yeah, it's it'll serve them very very well to get excited about it. Like uh, it's better to uh, support technologies they are not excited about than deal with shadow IT. Pete, you know my line on that, Ali. Developers don't call it shadow IT; they just call it work. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Absolutely. And if if you're a listener that plays the cloud unfiltered drinking game with the term serverless, you're in for a world of hurt, I think, here for the next <laughs> 20 minutes since we have Krish on. 
Let me, I, there's a lot of things I could ask you about, but since, since we moved to the topic of Lambda, it obviously was first in the market and has some first mover advantage there, along with you know all the great services that you can consume on AWS aligned with that. But what do you make of Tim Wagner leaving? Do you read anything into that? Um, so he's he's often credited as the as the you know the the grandfather of the serverless movement, um, and and he left Amazon recently. Do you do you take anything into that? Uh, no, I, I I've been reading some of the chatter about it, but uh, I think uh, Tim got ex excited about uh, uh, blockchain technology. I think he moved to a blockchain startup, startup crypto startup, right? Yeah, he did. Uh, so I think uh, I would uh, say probably it, it, it has more to do with Tim leaving than anything with uh, Lambda. But again, uh, probably like if we, if we go to AWS Reinvent, I'll know some uh, backstories. But at this point, like uh, I, I don't, I haven't, at least I haven't heard of anything interesting around that. All right. Well, I had to ask a question because you get to go to that Sunday evening reInvent session that I don't get to go to where you hear more stuff, you know, you and Tim Crawford and, and all of our other friends like that. You guys hear some of that stuff that I don't. So I thought I had to ask the question. Yeah. Um, but, we, you know, we're, we, we've talked a little bit about serverless and how it intersects with, with containers. And the, the way that I keep this straight in my head is containers and function as a service are sort of the inter infrastructure underpinnings. And what you develop on top of them are application architectures that are either serverless or microservices Absolutely. in nature. We, I mean, you know it's a new technology when nobody's even agreed on the terms, but at least that's, that's how I kind of make sense of that in my head. But you you know because we've been on some Twitter threads with this that there's still kind of this 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 faction of the serverless community that has this like FAS versus containers war yeah. thing going at now are are you in the it's either or, or are you in the both camp I'm in the both camp so like I, I see I uh, I even I did a blog post about it I see a spectrum of uh, abstraction that's going to serve the uh, your enterprise needs, uh, as you correctly pointed out, you are going to have a mixture of uh, microservices and functions as a service catering to the needs of uh, developers. So I am in the both camp, but I do see this kind of head-to-head uh, -head, uh, discussions uh, between serverless uh, folks in the serverless camp as well as folks in the Kubernetes camp. Uh, so uh, I would say, like instead of like uh, looking at it as Kubernetes versus serverless, I would say. It's Kubernetes and serverless. Probably, like uh, you go for, uh, from managing containers on top of virtual machines using Kubernetes to like uh, something like uh, Fargate or uh, Azure Container Instances to the, then uh, functions as a service. It's a spectrum of abstraction that we are going to deal with in our organizations right. going forward. Than this or that. Now, where do you think that decision process is as to where, in what circumstances should I use a function versus using a container? Is it as simple as I've got to keep some state in memory and I've got a performance use case where I can't afford to load it out of a database? Or are there other, other guidelines where you're, you're still going to need like a server daemon running in a container as opposed to a function that'll have a life cycle of a few milliseconds? Uh, the way I tell people uh, looking at this, uh, difference between uh, containers and serverless is, if it is event-driven from a kind of a story and that's stateless, go with functions as a service. Right. And, uh, in fact, in my, in, in my GitHub repo, I have something called decision diagram where I sort of guide people through when, when to use 
virtual machines to when to when they can use functions as a service so like uh, if it is event driven uh, go for serverless anything else stay put with containers because at this point serverless uh, it's fast maturing but still like uh, you have a long way to go before you can take uh, functions as a service to uh, applications that are more complex than uh, just a event driven kind of a function Right. Well, certainly that that event driven, that's kind of the low hanging fruit. You see a lot of the Lambda use cases they talk at reInvent are, are all about like automating uh, admin tasks, like changing a DNS name when an EC2 instance comes up and, and that kind of thing where you've got a really well established trigger and you just so that I don't have to go write a script or I don't have to go to the, the console to do that stuff. You kind of automate that stuff. Yeah. I know we talked before we started and I'll, I'll reveal this a little bit. I've started to play with web application development on top of not just Lambda, but on top of some of the other FAS platforms that you just mentioned. So like open, open stack or open stack. <laughs> open stack. <laughs> open, <laughs> go. Open, open whisk, open FAS, Fission, and Kubeless. I just started with FN, and I'm seeing some differences in the platforms, um, even with that approach as well to build like really simple web applications. So not something as complicated as like a big e-commerce application, but literally what I've been doing is playing around with guestbook as a you know that just it's got a create function and it's got a list function, and that's it. You got like a super simple UI in front of that. Um, so yeah, there's there's lots of different ways that you can potentially play with that. But the, the other one you name dropped there a mention ago, which I know you have a real passion about, is Fargate. So for those that don't know Fargate, can you define that for us? And you've had periods on Twitter where you've been really passionate about that. You, you think that's how AWS is going to win the war over Kubernetes? It, it, you, you've been almost that emphatic. Yeah. So the way I look at Fargate is like uh, being able to use containers without having to manage the underlying infrastructure. It's like mm -hmm. Uh, uh, just uh, consuming containers without the headaches of any managing any of the infrastructure underneath, whether it's virtual machines or uh, bare metal servers or even mainframe, I don't care. But uh, what Amazon does with Fargate, in fact, Amazon was not the first company to do that. Microsoft Azure offered Azure container instances before Amazon came out with Fargate. So like, uh, what it, uh, it allows us to do is to consume containers based on uh, what you need to do and not worry about uh, ma managing anything underneath. So now they are supporting ECS on top of uh, the containers for orchestrating it and Kubernetes right. is going to come probably in the next reinvent. Uh, what I expect, this is where I think uh, my blog post uh, became a little uh, controversial. What I meant, uh, what I am arguing is I'm, the largest number of Kubernetes users are in AWS. So yeah. if uh, when I spoke to some of the AWS customers using Kubernetes, that was do-it-yourself Kubernetes, uh, during last reInvent, they said, reInvent, they said, as soon as uh, AWS announces something like a managed Kubernetes service, they will move there. It, uh, Amazon already announced that. So now if Amazon brings Kubernetes on top of uh, Fargate, then that is even more simplified uh, thing for uh, uh, the Kubernetes users to use. They don't have to worry about managing the underlying infrastructure. They just uh, consume containers, use Kubernetes to orchestrate them, and get going. Now, me, yeah, go ahead. No, let me see, let me, so let me try to restate that. So you're, you're finding that today, if, if I'm understanding your position correctly, that most people spin up some ET2 instances on their own and, and, and lay their own Kubernetes trunk on top of that, right? But if you go to something like even GKE, right, you still, 
there's it, it's it's simplified in terms of okay here's the GKE distro I want but then here's the instance sizes I want for my master and my node but I, I still have to make those decisions about how I want the networking to be between those two and we have a very similar experience with Cisco Container Platform on-prem as well. Yes. But I think what you're saying is, okay, what Fargate does is take that the next step beyond that, where now I don't have to have visibility to the VM instances that are underneath my Kubernetes cluster. I just say, give me a cluster, and it'll expand and contract as I need. And then that gets a little bit closer to your, your, you know, your developer nirvana that you were talking about before, where you can reach that to the IDE and not just to the cloud console. Did Absolutely. I restate that okay? Yeah, that's a pretty good description of uh, Fargate. But also, like, uh, it is uh, it is also about the cost. Now, I don't have to worry about paying for the underlying EC2 instances. I only focus on paying for the containers I use. The container, the container right. instance sizes. So the cost is a factor too. The abstraction as well as the cost is a factor. And uh, from there, what I expect is now Amazon brings in Kubernetes on board, so all the Kubernetes users on top of Fargate. Now they put an abstraction on top and say, hey, don't worry about even handling Kubernetes uh, and Kubernetes clusters. Right. We'll give you an abstraction which will make it as seamless as function AWS Lambda so that you can uh, just focus on deploying your applications. And that's it. Uh, when Amazon does that, Kubernetes is in uh, limbo. Like They are losing significant number of users to Amazon's proprietary yeah. platform. Yeah, I, 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 I see what you're saying there. I mean, they... The, the one thing that Amazon continues to do a really good job of is so focused on the developer. I mean, there's a reason why they give away hoodies at reInvent every year, right? They're not giving away sport coats. They're, they're giving away, they're giving away uh, hoodies for that. So I guess with all this as background, let's kind of bring this up a notch. And so if you're, if you're the CXO, whether you're you know, either the CTO, the CIO, or the CEO, so if I make you, you know, if I make you, if I give you that job at a Fortune 500 company today, what, what what do you do, what's your playbook? What what do you do to incorporate these new technologies that are so focused on developer productivity? Okay, so my as, depending on the leverage, my decision is going to vary. But uh, uh, what I would say is, I, the first mandate will be anything new. It goes yeah. on to uh, my microservices architecture using containers or functions as a service using serverless technologies. Would you go as far as saying serverless first? Is that the edict? Uh, it's would... serverless and microservices. Like, uh, it's like uh, <laughs> containers and uh, serverless. Uh, depending, uh, depending on use cases, it's going to change a little bit. But any new development, any new development should be on these technologies. Uh, containers and serverless should be the thing. And then depending on the uh, legacy debt I have, and uh, depending on the flexibility I have in yeah. re-architecting that legacy debt, I'll slowly move them over to container technologies and uh, wherever appropriate, I'll tap into serverless. That'll be my playbook. Uh, doing anything else uh, probably uh, might serve in, uh, so help me in short term, but if I look at it from a long term, right. probably that's not the right approach. Have you so, spent much effort? I'm sorry, Ali, were you gonna say something? Oh, no, uh, just the legacy debt uh, comment brought something up. I just thought how many companies in the real world <laughs> would be ready to take that ideal approach? Um, are you, you know, you're dealing with these companies, I assume, as a, as a consultant or uh, analyst. And and what are you seeing? Are they are they anywhere near ready to adopt serverless? Um, for the net new workloads, yes, they are open to serverless. Uh, the, I even spoke to some of these companies, uh, including uh, some of the banks that are trying to embrace uh, serverless for their new, uh, new workloads. 
about the lock-in issue because one of the biggest risks with serverless is the lock-in issue. I asked them, like, aren't you worried about lock-in issue being such a big bank? Aren't you worried about it? What they said is the cost of building a serverless application is, uh, application is so small. The speed with which they can build that application is so fast. Even if they are logged in, they can as well uh, get rid of it and build it again. So that's uh, that's uh, that's what uh, went to uh, went that that uh, conversation went into me advocating something called disposable applications. Just like how we are talking about disposable infrastructure, where uh, we say that treat infrastructure as pets. I am now saying I started saying I won't say I'm strongly advocating. I started telling people think of applications like pets, uh, like cattle instead of pets. So like I build it, destroy it. Keep moving on. So the, it's going to take a long time. Like uh, for net new applications, they are open to serverless, but it's going to take uh, quite uh, knowing how enterprise customers move. It's going to take time. So you're saying they're less likely to go. Gosh, we've you know we've got this application written for legacy hardware and in legacy you know kind of format. We're we're sticking with it. You're saying in some cases, and rather than trying to port it over, just trash the whole thing, write it write it anew in serverless. Uh, no, 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 not trash the whole. That's not going to happen. Like uh, I'm not talking about the legacy applications per se. I'm talking about the net new applications. So uh, when you build it, treat it as uh, cattle rather than pet. Okay. Don't sort of like uh, tie it deeply with any. Uh, uh, don't make architectural decisions that will tie it deeply. So come with an approach that okay, tomorrow if I don't need it, I can uh, dispose of the application and build a new one. Okay. Okay, got it. All disposable applications, but uh, people are far away from embracing that idea. No, just I mean, there's, there's, I've seen an example of that most recently with, and I can't, I, I it was right, right before, uh, right before Cisco Live in Orlando, there was a, there was the lead developer at KitchenAid. You remember this one, Chris? Mm -hmm. Where they, it, it took them like two weeks to refactor and well, refactor completely rebuild their find a store near you application that they were using. And they did it with Lambda. They had a simple Dynamo database that had a dump of what their uh, what retail outlets carry their products. Mm -hmm. And they just did, they, they set up a couple of Lambda functions to an API gateway in front of that to do reads. And then they combined that in a browser with Google Maps data. You know, and it and it took them a couple of weeks, and they just yeah, they went straight yeah. to production. And so that I think that's a good example of what you mean by well, I mean, heck, if it only took you if it took you less than a month to build it, yeah, you it's can probably okay for you to throw it away yeah. if it doesn't work out, right? Yeah. Now the legacy ones, I think Ali's hitting on something big there. I mean, a lot of companies have these legacy applications. What do you think about the idea of that? There is some percentage of those legacy applications, and I don't know what it is. But but having having had arguments in the late '90s with ops guys as to whether or not uh, Java JVMs were going to kill performance or not, it, it, and that seems ludicrous now, you know, 20 years later. But it, a lot of those applications, a Linux shell is a Linux shell is a Linux shell, right? And it, as long as it's configured in such a way that you can pass it the IP and port number that it needs to talk to its other components. There's a lot of those applications that could theoretically run in containers and not know that they're not running on bare metal or VMs, right? What, what, what out of what, what percentage of those of those legacy apps do you think fit that? As, as like, is it less than fifty percent? Is it less than twenty percent? That that you could potentially have this this new world where your net new is happening on top of your Kubernetes structures and and maybe a function as a service on top of that, but your legacy ones 
are running on uh, containers because they just need Linux shells, and now you don't have a VM management layer that you need anymore. At least 50% of the legacy applications are going to be like that. You can sort of like uh, just lift and shift and move it to containers because yeah. uh, uh, what I, there are some legacy applications which you just cannot move. Like uh, they, they, you you may be able to move technically, but uh, people will not be willing to move because of uh, various business considerations. But uh, many other applications you could uh, move it to containers. You have it can be stateful applications. You can move it and still manage it. Yeah. Uh, be little, yeah, you cannot treat it as a cattle, but you need to be, you need to sort right. of manage it a little more. So there is an operational overhead there. But the thing is, you can still do it. I would say, I would advise if there is an option, go for it. Uh, instead of keeping it in the traditional way, move it to containers because that gives you more opportunity for the, to get that application working seamlessly with the next gen applications. So you put it in a container, probably put a API wrapper, API around it. And get it talking to yeah. all the new newer applications. So that's what I tell people: like, uh, uh, go go with containers if you can. Uh, uh, again, it uh, depends on the care, uh, depends on the application, depends on many uh, other factors. Right, but, but if it's possible, right? you can do that. Those brownfield apps won't be able to take advantage of containerization in the same way that a net new application would. It's not going to be able to take advantage of you know the auto uptime or the heartbeat yeah. or you know, the the auto scaling and some of that cooler stuff you can do with the net new. But if if you can get rid of a management layer, yeah. why not do it, right? Yeah, just uh, consolidate the management under uh, one control plane or uh, at least uh, bring it under one control plane that should help, yeah. Yeah. Al, you got anything else? I got one more for him. Nope, that's it. Go ahead, ask away. We're running right up against the end of our time. Okay. So. Well, Chris, hey, I appreciate you making time for this. I still have very fond memories of the self-serve uh, yogurt that we caught together that first week we met at the uh, food court at the New York, New York in Las Vegas, Nevada. Mm -hmm. um, so I appreciate the, the, the time for this. So you you mentioned in, in our prep that uh, you're heading to Microsoft Ignite next week. Or is there anything in particular you're looking forward to there from Microsoft? Um, uh, there are a few things I'm looking forward to. Like, I really want to understand uh, what Microsoft is going to do with the container services, like uh, especially as Amazon is ramping up on Kubernetes and the Fargate and all that. I want to know how Microsoft is going to respond to that. Right. That's the thing I understand. Then uh, I also want to know whether Microsoft is going to get serious about Azure function. Because AWS Lambda is gaining so much uh, traction and uh, serverless is becoming a conversation for whenever you meet, meet, uh, meet over beer. So like, uh, in fact, Alex Williams of Newstack even had that conversation with the Lyft driver yesterday. So serverless wow. is fast becoming uh, uh, the thing for people. So I, would, I want to know what uh, Microsoft is going to do with the Azure functions. Then I am interested in learning about uh, Microsoft's strategy when it comes to AI, machine learning and AI. They acquired a couple of companies in the last three months. I would love to know what they're going to do that in, the, in terms of cloud service and how they are going to integrate with the, the rest of their portfolio. Because like Google, uh, Microsoft also has very good uh, data store portfolio, data lake and other kind of uh, services. So yeah. they have a coherent strategy there. Probably they could attract developers interested in machine learning and AI technologies. So I would love to know what they're going to do there. 
Cool. That sounds like a lot of exciting stuff. Out of all the things you were going to say today, Alex Williams had a serverless conversation with his Lyft driver. It was not among them, but that's yeah. that's, <laughs> that's, that's super interesting. So thanks yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris, for being on the show. You, uh, you helped bring up some things we haven't been talking much about before. Um, I certainly haven't heard a discussion on Fargate yet. One thing I did want to ask is how how commonly do you feel like is Fargate something that everybody knows about? Would developers all know about that? Is it something that's being used pretty heavily, or is it just really brand new? Uh, Fargate is brand new. Like uh, they launched it last reinvent. So, uh, but I, uh, I would expect uh, to get a lot more traction during this year's reinvent. So, uh, Fargate is brand new. Interesting. Okay, good. And, uh, and uh, they need to support Kubernetes before it really takes off in a big way. Yeah. Like, uh, right now, they are supporting only ECS. So once they offer Kubernetes support, which I expect in the ne next reinvent, I think uh, this will take off. Well, that's exciting. We'll have to keep tracking the progress of, of, of Fargate and see what, what happens with that. But uh, but thank you for talking serverless with Pete. He, he needs that outlet. He likes that a lot. It makes podcasting more fun for him. So. Yeah, it's always great chatting with Pete. Like uh, he gives uh, some really good insights, and uh, especially I've been following his uh, blog posts on serverless. And I think I had him on a podcast uh, regarding serverless too some time back. Yeah, it's always great to listen uh, what Pete says. And uh, thanks for inviting me. It is a, it's a great conversation. Sure, sure. Well, we hope to talk to you again soon, and uh, and have a terrific day. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. -bye, everybody.